This is John Yoko, uh, a trailer for the pop inside with Anne Nightingale, who will be twittering, <laughs> and she will be playing some classic Ono records, folks, the latest album and single. Yes, we hope so. We hope so. <laughs> Please play it. Please listen. Welcome this week's When They Was Fab. I'm Ed Chen. I'm John Stone. So we pick up from where we left off last week. We are in the middle of talking about uh, 1969, 1970, you know, John's trips to the uh, Janov Institute and his run through primal therapy. We're not finished yet. Well, we won't be finished for a good long while. (laughs) All these songs just came out of me, you know. I didn't sit down to think I'm going to write about my mother, or I didn't sit down to think I'm going to write about this, that, or the other. They all came out, you know, like all the best work of anybody's ever does, you know, whether it's an article or a, you know, it's just the best ones come out, and all these came out because I had I had the time. The next song is Hold On. Now, that seems to be a song that originated after they came back to London. Hello, Klaus, playing chords. Very good, Klaus. That's quite ingenious, really. Yeah. There's no no trace of it on any of the, the Los Angeles, the Bel Air cassettes. And also, you listen to what he brought into the studio... That seems to be much more, much more sort of a a Beatles way of working. It's like here's the song, let's finish it up. Really, I don't have too much more to say about that. Yeah, it's a good recording. Uh, everything we've already said will pretty much re- uh, apply to everything in this set. This is true. The bass is great into the four. The drums, you can see both the forest and the trees uh, in the recordings. Stick your headphones on, and it's there for you. Definitely, definitely. Uh, I, I got a chuckle out of the line in that when he goes, "It's gonna be alright." He gets really low, and a lot of times, I mean, in the past, it's kind of lost in the th- the music. Whereas this, you hear that richness of his voice when he goes down to the low note. And then there's the the infamous 
cookie. <laughs> right. So so Sesame Street was on at that time. Was PBS happening <laughs> by then? I don't know. You don't know. Okay. Sesame Street. Originating as a program called Television for Preschool Children, it went on to pioneer TV-based educational programming. Created in the mid-1960s, it was quickly pitched as an experiment to test the usefulness of TV technology as an educational tool. Debuting in 1969... So, returning to Hold On and John's shout-out of... Cookie! It would almost certainly have to be a reference to Cookie Monster. Hi, Bert. As we noted, you know, John and Yoko would turn on the television, and I guess if they were doing Primal, Sesame Street would be a good thing to uh, <laughs> to watch in the morning before you go right. in and scream your head off for a couple hours. Right. And that is the sort of thing that would have attracted John's attention. True. And he clearly liked to go into other things in his head all through this when he's when they're playing he'll just all of a sudden go and do a different song or you know what is i dig a pygmy you know he he just kind of sparks off these things and uh, i think that's kind of what that is, is watch <laughs> watching sesame street perhaps yeah i mean you know like i say i know that it had started it wasn't this it wasn't nearly as big as it would become in the subsequent years, but I could also see that is something that John would have tuned into. Right. I was too old to be into Sesame Street when it began. It was certainly something that clearly he did enough to make an imprint on other people because Ringo would do the same thing in early 1970 when talking <laughs> about John. Right. You know, he would, he, he did the, he did the cookie impression. It's like, Okay. Why are you doing? Well, okay, we don't get a lot of it in this box set, but there may be half an hour of John shouting "cookie" that they just decided not to give us. <laughs> then that's followed by "I Found Out," which is a Los Angeles recording. Yeah, you you could hear the therapy all through that song. Um. But that brings us to a point that we were talking about. There's a line in there, there ain't no guru who can see through your eyes, but John was right in the middle of the primal. You know, he was under Janov's, we won't say spell, but he was with the program at that point. Right. Yeah, I suppose. Again, I don't know where in the process of writing that that line might have appeared. It might not have been until later. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll have to go through the demos and, and, yeah, and figure it the, out from there. Yeah, how early that line shows up. But I still think uh, I still be, think the therapy is great, you know, but I just don't want to make it into a big uh, Maharishi thing. And that's why I don't even want to talk too much about it. Mm. If people know what I've, what I've been through there, and if they want to find out, they can find out, you know. The line that gets me is, uh, I heard something about my mom and my pa. They didn't want me, so they made me a star. I thought, that's the therapy right there. Yeah, but then you compare that to what he'd written in uh, Instant Karma, you know, a superstar, well, right you are. You know, it's like, well, which is it, John? What on earth do you think you are? <laughs> right. So, 
Okay, th then we move on to uh, to working class hero. On working class hero, it sounds like a like an early Dylan song. Well, anybody that sings with a guitar and and just sings about something heavy would tend to sound like Dylan. I'm bound to be influenced by those because that's the only kind of really folk music I ever listened to. I never liked the fruity Colin, Judy Collins, and Byers and all that stuff, you know. I, I, so the only folk music I know is those the minor dungaree, you know, that sort of about miners up in Newcastle or Dylan. So in that way I'd be influenced, you know, but it doesn't sound like Dylan to me. Does it sound like Dylan to you? Uh, only in the imitation. But, no, but that's the, that's the only way to play. You know, you go jing, jing, jing. I think it's a revolutionary song, you know. Not the song itself, it's a song for the revolution. That's a song which is, it's a great song. It's very much sort of John doing Dylan, but it's never quite sat completely right with me because John's never really been a working class hero. Right. But that was the image he chose for a while. Maybe you could look at that as being John's version of Ziggy Stardust. You know, he's going to present himself as a working class guy. You know, he dressed up in overalls. And Not a good look for John, by the way. <laughs> There's one photo in particular where he's sitting behind a sign that says, uh, you know, leave, leave these microphones in place for the John Lennon session. And John just he looks he looks fat and he looks out of it wow you mentioned the overalls and you know that yeah that the, those coveralls just sort of bring that image to mind yeah they're not slimming <laughs> especially because john was so concerned about his weight throughout his whole life right i guess at the time i accepted it on face value that you know he had some working class roots Maybe everybody from Liverpool had working class roots. You know, I, I don't know. A lot of the detail came later. The first chapter of Lewiston where he goes into the family history of, of each of the Beatles and immigrating from Ireland and you know, sort of how it was normal that you would have a dozen kids and lose four of them. Yeah. Sad thing about infant mortality back then. Then that wasn't working class. That was the bottom of the bottom. By the time John got to Mimi, Mimi was... While not wealthy, she was certainly decidedly middle class, I would say. Lower middle class, perhaps. Well, you know, there was a period of time not too long before that Hitler tried to bomb the crap out of the place. And, and it took a while for people to come back from that kind of... Yep. Okay, next is the song that's become the song of uh, 2020, Isolation. <laughs> Like the piano's very sharp and echoey and the bass is bassy and the drums are drumming. They're all very slow except for the fast ones. We'll try this one now. You can so you can practice chords and everything, you know, just Right. Johnny Depp did a version. Sean did a tremendous version on uh, Stephen Colbert earlier this year. It's a good song. Very unique and really real for him. It's his view of just being this guy he sees himself as very, very small uh, and vulnerable. And he put that in the song. The odd thing about that is he was isolated to a certain extent because of his own choices. He's the one who split up the Beatles. Yeah. And you know, some of that comes out of, again, the heroin. That sort of glassy-eyed state kept them separated from the rest of the world. 
I've always struck by, you can go back and see interviews by 1966, where he's basically saying, hey, it's already too much. We don't even know what we're going to do. I mean, he never says the Beatles are breaking up, but he was looking for something because he'd gone through this phenomenon. Uh, other Beatles are going to go their own ways in 1967. They couldn't be, you know, on our own or together. We're always involved with each other, whatever we're doing. Could you ever see a time when, in fact, you weren't working together? I could see us working not together for a period, but we'd always get together for one reason or other. Like, I mean, you, you need other people for ideas as well, but, you know, and we all get along fine. Well, I think that's part of what How I Won the War was, you know. It's like, and John has said it, you know, it's, it's, it's him looking at what is life without the Beatles. Right. But there's an interview with the Beatles in, in Playboy in 1965, and Ringo has this, my favorite quote, which is, Sometimes I get in the back of the limousine and I think to myself, my God, I'm a bloody phenomenon. And then I look over at John and it's just John and I have to laugh. Hmm. You know, so here we are 50 years on talking about the Beatles, but they never saw it that way. Harrison said they never had the Beatles. They're the only ones who never got to see the Beatles. Right. As they say. So I think that this was about how he viewed his life. He didn't care if it was going to go on further. He he was tired of the star-making machinery. And so, yeah, that inside one, and the, that's one thing about CD. They give you a substantial gap there, but still not like getting up and turning over the record. I, I still remember the, the impression side one made for me. It's like, now I've got to get up and turn over the record. <laughs> and it's you know, kind of the same thing with the, with Abbey road where, you know, I want you, she's so heavy. It stops suddenly. And then it goes into the next song a couple seconds later, but it's like, well, that's still not quite the same, is it? <laughs> right. So the first side has been, it's been a fair bit of, of John and primal, the second side is not quite so hard, I don't think. And on the original record, it's just John Lennon on the piano, Klaus Vorman on bass, and Ringo Starr on drums. Right. And uh, we have Stephen and Andy and Tommy here, Miles Zuno on KTX.
Next is uh, Remember. Why exactly does John invoke Guy Fawkes Day? You know, I'm not really sure. Perhaps he knew he was going to end it with an explosion. <laughs> What's November 5th? In England, it's the, the day they blew up the Houses of Parliament. We celebrate it by having bonfires every November the 5th. I just, it just was an ad lib, you know. We'd been doing, it was about the third take. And I just got to the remember, and it begins to sound like Frankie Lane, you know, when 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 you sing, you remember, and then it was the end. I didn't know how to go. Remember the fifth of November, you know, and I just broke away, and it w- went on for about another seven or eight minutes. You know, I was just ad libbing and goofing about, but then I cut it there and just exploded because it was a good joke. You know? And w- haven't you ever heard of the, uh, Guy Fawkes? Guy That's Guy the Fawkes Guy Fawkes Day, yeah. And I thought it was just poignant that we should blow up the Houses of Parliament. <laughs> now, as opposed to the bells at the beginning, the explosion still sounds like it's from somewhere else. Yeah, yes. Like a TV or something. Yeah. And I, I think it's cool that that piano riff was taken from a piano riff that was kind of jammed out on when they did something. Which in turn comes from, he had a demo uh, across the Great Water, I believe is the name of the song. Not that it ever got to the point of having lyrics. And that's that same riff. Is it? Yep. So he had it around in his head. Right. I would would agree with that. So John's travel visa, as we noted, ended in August, September of 1970. Correct. And I think one of the uh, things that has always influenced my view of this particular album was very early on, I read, you know, Jan Winter saying that that they went to see Let It Be with him and that he, he cried. Because John had not seen him. Let It Be before. And, and yeah, it was it was it, Winter and Yoko and uh, Winter's wife and John. And it's like, it, that still amazes me. It's like, you know, that they could just sort of pull up in front of a theater in 1970 and buy a ticket and walk in. Right. Nobody noticed. But as Winter states, how many guys were there in 1970 walking the streets who kind of look like John Lennon? (laughs) Right. The thing about that is, as John was leaving the Institute, there are sort of two versions of it. There's Janov's version of what happened, and then there's the version John would tell in subsequent years. Janov claims that John really wanted to continue and that they were trying to set something up with a therapist in Mexico. Can you 
send a therapist with us and, and we'll go to Mexico and we'll finish the therapy there. There are better drugs in Mexico. <laughs> that is Janos' version of what happened. And, and there's reason to believe that a little bit because on their way out of the country, as you know, they, they drove to San Francisco, they, they hung out with Jan Winter, and John gave Jan Winter a copy of The Primal Scream. And, and he inscribed it. It's like, you know, I've been through the drugs. This is it. This is the solution. So at least through the time of his return to England, he was still a true believer. Yeah. Then John's own version of the story in subsequent years would be that Janoff brought in a camera crew and had intended to film one of John and Yoko's sessions. And it's like, "Uh uh-uh, I ain't going to do that. And John claims that he, he stormed off right then and there. Yeah, interesting to me that that's exactly the same story that he told about the Maharishi, or that was told about the Maharishi, that he brought in cameras. Well, of course, John's version of breaking up with the Maharishi was the whole making out with the the young nurse. Right. But the the camera story is, yeah, that, that was something which has come out fairly recently, which has actually been, well, if you choose to believe it, has actually been proven true. There was a camera crew coming to film, particularly film John and George, but film what was happening at the ashram and it's like no we're not going to do that and so so they they left the front out the front door as the camera crew came in the back well you know i'm not sure are all the the pictures we have from that that time home movie cameras other than the stuff from the very beginning there was a path news crew and they filmed a bunch of stuff they they were like there for one day at the right. very beginning, when all the Beatles were there, you know, before Ringo left. Ringo left a month or more before John left. Well, that, that footage of the helicopter. I believe that was the newsreel, that was that came from the newsreel crew. Really? I mean, you know, I think the Beatles appropriated that footage. That wasn't actually the trip where, you know, John was raising his hand. Me, me, sir, slip me the answer. But, you know, I think Maharishi... Again, the more we the more we learn about him, yeah, Maharishi. While he may have been a holy man, uh, he had his publicist and he had his helicopter and he liked his worldly things. Or he could have been proselytizing. You know, that's how you make it work. So. It could be. We won't go into folks like uh, oh, what's his name, uh, uh, who now preaches out of the summit. No, no, I'm not going there. <laughs> but there are similarities, shall we say? <laughs> yeah, perhaps. We move on from the explosion to the second song on side two, Love. Just a sweet little love song to Yoko. Love is, is I wrote it in, in a spirit of love. In all that, I, I wrote it in a spirit of love. It's, it's for Yoko. It has all that connotation for me. And it's a beautiful melody. And I'm not even known for writing melody. There's all that angle. I like the song Love, you know. I think it's a, it's a, 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 I like the melody and the words and everything. I think it's beautiful, you know. But I'm more of a rocker, that's all. Right. John is almost trying to out McCartney McCartney here. <laughs> I have always connected that song with Because. Lyrically, there's a similarity to it, the, the way he puts hmm. lines together. But it's real, very pretty. Uh, first cover version of that song I ever heard was by the letterman and they did a great job 
Yeah, I believe that was released as a single by the Letterman, and it was uh, the B-side to Maybe Tomorrow, but not the Badfinger song Maybe Tomorrow. Now, the comparison to Because is not really one that I've ever made, but I can see it. John is singing in a very similar way to, to the way he was doing some of those ahs on Because. That was not quite so evident before. Right. Yeah. I, I'm kind of going on impression because I can't call specific lines to mind, but they're just the way he he plays with words is the same here as in on Because. But I, but because I didn't prepare for this, um, I couldn't tell you exactly where. But maybe the next show I'll go, this is what that's about. <laughs> We've got at least a couple more Plastic Ono shows here. We're over an hour in and uh, we haven't <laughs> finished this record. Uh, next up is another of the uh, Bel Air tracks, uh, Well, Well, Well. Yes. Yeah. Now, there's a song where John's wordplay comes in. Yes. He uses a guitar line that uh, is somehow new and familiar at the same time. This would then become uh, one of the uh, Beatles solo songs who is at least nominally about uh, oral sex. You know, Paul would have a couple of them. Right. Well, you know, she 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 looks so beautiful I could eat her. Right. And in in one of the demos he says, and I did, and it's like, Yeah, John, <laughs> we we, we kind of got that's where you we were going. <laughs> well, it's good to know that John enjoyed sex. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> no, not 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 at all. Paul would do the same later with the eat at home. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. You, sure. we, we get where you're going, Paul. You don't need to tell us. Well, apparently, you know, you write what you know. <laughs> hey, uh, let's see. They they were they were about thirty years old. Yeah, you, you can be you you're thirty years old after a life of uh, as many women as they could possibly want. Yeah, they can write about <laughs> being horny if they want. You know, yeah, and really, when you write a song and it kind of comes out, it's really hard to just take the lyrics and throw them all away and put something else on top of what you've written. That's hard. When, when John did it with Jealous Guy, that was impressive. So, you know, you write about oral sex, you're going to keep it about oral sex. Hey. That's the song. Nonetheless, it's it, that's always managed to be kind of amusing. Then we come to uh, Look at Me, which is, Something which John had actually written in India. And, and you can tell. Yes, he's using the Donovan finger picking that he's... Travis picking, yeah. Yeah. And that would have fit... If it had been Look at Me instead of Julia on the White Album, it would have been exactly the same. It wouldn't have changed the White Album one bit. I mean, other than Julia would, wouldn't be on it, but... Yeah. Yeah. Although I think Julia is as poetical he's ever he ever got about Yoko. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful lyric. It's just really romantic and sweet. So, anyway, Julia might well have fit better here than than look at me. I mean, yeah, that's an interesting thought. You know, we're talking about Yoko, and then you know, just considering the the Oedipal nature of the rest of the album, it's like interesting, right? Then that brings us to the last real song on the disc, God. I just decided to put. Julia after God, right before my mummy's dead. <laughs> okay, well that works too. God had always been 
kind of a slightly negative song to me, but not anymore. This mix, it brings out the hopefulness in what John's singing. Right. You know, it started off kind of really gospel and uh, which worked because Billy Preston was on the organ and had that kind of feel to it. And it slowly evolved into something else, slightly different bit. Billy loved the band and they loved Billy. John actually said, come on, Billy, do a little of your gospel piano. It's about God, you know. <laughs> so he inspired him to do something about his, you know, something that's his upbringing. Billy uh, learned piano playing and organ playing in church. And that's, uh, he really believed in God and, and that's the way he plays on this song. It's beautiful. He's playing a little bit gospel. He's playing a little bit honky-tonk, too, if you listen to it. You're right. You know, the line is, it's a really cool little piano line. Yeah, and of course, it got most of the attention because of the lyrics. Of course. How did you uh, uh, put together the litany? Uh, What's litany? Well, the, the uh, I don't believe in, in magic and stuff. Uh, well, I... Uh, like a lot of the words, they just came out of my mouth. It started off like that, you know. So I was, God was stuck together from three songs almost. I had the, I had the idea. God is a concept by which we measure our pain. So when you have a a, a word like that, you just sit down and sing the first tune that comes into your head, and, and the tune is the symbol. God is a concept. Boom, 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 boom. You know, because I like that kind of music, and then. And then I just rolled into it. I don't believe in magic. And it was just going on in my head. And I Ching and Bible and the first three or four just came out. Whatever came out, you know. Did you, and, when did you know that you were going to be working towards that? To, I don't believe in needles. Uh, I don't know when I realized I was putting down all, all, all these things that I didn't believe in, you know. So I just... I could have gone on, it was like a Christmas card list, you know, I thought, well, where do I end, you know, Churchill and uh, who have I missed out, it got like that, you know, and I thought, I had to stop, you know, so, yeah, and then I was going to leave a gap and say, just fill in your own, you know, for whoever you don't believe in, in. it was just getting got out of hand, you know, so, but Beatles was the final thing, because uh, it's like, I no longer believe in, in myth, you know, and Beatles is another myth, you know. I don't believe in it. The the dream's over, you know. And I'm not just talking about the Beatles is over. I'm talking about the generation thing, you know. The dream's over, like it's over, you know. And we gotta, well, I have anyway personally gotta get down to so-called reality. Going back to the mix for a second, you know, part of the reason I, I felt about this song the way I have. You've seen the the Imagine John Lennon documentary. Yes. Well, first off, they made a mess of the mix of everything in that film. You know, we talk about doing surround sound right. They did it poorly there. They just slathered echo over everything, which did not work with the sole exception of God. Really? John and Yoko as these sort of dots at Niagara Falls and God playing in the background. And then, you know, it comes up to... I don't believe in Beatles, and it just echoes for what seems like forever. 
that's kind of where my impression of the song had always come from. Yeah, this is kind of a slightly dark song. Yeah, I can see that. Freed from all of that, it's like, it really isn't. You know, it's it's John, it, this is John having been through, really having been through everything, including the primal, and it's like, okay, I can put everything aside for now. And, you know, and he, all of his I don't believe in is not like, you know, obviously Elvis and Dylan and Beatles and Kennedy existed, but he doesn't believe in the the fantasy of what all of these people are. You know, you can put all of that behind him and say, let's look to the future. You know, and what do we start with? We start with, with me and with Yoko. Yeah, I, I've always seen it as I don't believe in heroes. Anymore. And so, therefore, he starts with Yoko and... And him. I mean, it's a very, very personal song, for sure. It, it's absolutely a, a personal song, but... On the, on the song God, yes. it, it starts off by saying God is a concept by which we measure our pain. Well, pain is a pain we go through all the time, you know. And, uh, like, you're, you're born in pain, you know, and pain is what we're in most of the time. And I think that the bigger the pain, the more gods we need, you know. There's a tremendous body of literature, of philosophical literature, about God as, as, as a measurement of pain. Oh, I never heard about it. <laughs> See, it was my own re- revelation. See, I don't know who wrote about it or what anybody else said. I just know that's, a, that's what I know. Um, Amazing. But you just felt it. Yeah, I it? felt it, you see. So when I felt it, it's like I was crucified, you know. I find it a suitable ending to the primal chapter. Now, of course, John would jump right from here into radical politics, which really sort of never suited him particularly well. I mean, and you can't say that Bobby Seale and Jerry Rubin weren't exactly the same kind of figures to John. Yeah, he got caught up easily into that. That movement was very well organized by the time he came here. So getting into politics had a lot to do with how we remember him. Could he have written Imagine if he hadn't gone that route? Going back to the 60s, John was vilified for his you-can-count-me-out-in reaction to violence in revolution. But there was actually a response record to revolution. Nina Simone released it. If I had my way, I'd have been a killer, okay? That's true. I would have had guns, and I would have gone to the South and gave them violence for violence, shotgun for shotgun, if I had my way. But my husband told me I didn't know anything about guns, and he refused to teach me. And the only thing I had was music, so I obeyed him. But if I'd had my way, darn, I wouldn't be sitting here today. I'd be probably dead somewhere because I would have used guns during those years. I was never a nonviolent person. And here are some of the lyrics from the song. Yeah, your constitution. Well, my friend, it's going to have to bend. I'm here to tell you about destruction of all the evil that will have to end. Some folks are going to get the notion, I know they'll say I'm preaching hate, but if I have to swim the ocean, well, I would just to communicate. 
I guess I'm not really surprised. I don't know that I've ever heard it, but I'm not particularly surprised. But, you know, he kind of went back and forth because I think he's described the Imagine album as plastic on a band with sugar on it. But I don't really agree. I don't agree with that either. Imagine the song is maybe the Plastic Ono Band ideal with sugar on top, but John had moved on to other things by the Imagine album. Yeah. Uh, dissing sure. Paul among them. <laughs> right, yeah. But we'll have to take that one on at another time and because it's, it's a whole other album. Exactly. So We still have one more song. Uh, oh, yes, we still have one more song. <sighs> My Mummy's Dead. Now that, yes. you know, after all of the, what I just said about God and John coming through Primal, you know, he, here he, he's throwing on a little uh, Her Majesty. It's like, yeah, don't forget this album's about Primal. Yeah, uh, you know, I, the way he chose to record it is fundamental to that song because when you listen to all these different versions, demos and outtakes and everything, that distance, tinny uh, kind of mix is through them all. It's clearly what he had in mind. And it makes it sound like, uh, I don't know, a, a little boy. So it's really effective. Oh, no, no, absolutely. And, and, and the fact that he sort of, adapted three blind mice for the tune it's like yeah it's a children's song it's very very real for him well and really out of the whole lennon catalog if you know the if you want to know about john lennon you know that 45 seconds that tells you what what's sort of at the core of john lennon you know there's there's lots more than that but that heartbreak is really sort of what makes John's personality. And Paul has never really done something comparable. You you know he's got a song somewhere in here. You know, he turns into yesterday. Right. You know, why, why she had to go, I don't know. But he's never bared his soul to that extent. Yeah. Well, uh the way people write, you know, you, you could get a, a good idea of Paul's view of the world and childhood and all that. When you listen to his catalog of things, you know, put her there. Uh, there's just a lot of songs that come here and there. Uh, and, you know, John went through his period of what he often called gobbledygook, but virtually everything he wrote, you could work that meaning out of it, you know, what inspired that. Um, and it, in the end, it just, as I said, becomes the question of what kind of writer are you? What motivates you to write? John, Paul, what, you know, they ended up expressing different things. So you still get a great view of them as people. Well, and the fact that they learned some from each other. I mean, you know. Yes, a, a great friendship, a great songwriting partnership, even when they weren't a partnership, you know. Uh, they understood that just the idea that if you got stuck, that this other great writer who writes stuff that you appreciate will help you with your song. 
I'm thinking of myself at this point as Paul McCartney, clearly. Mm. Well, and um, you know, even even when they were writing sort of these diss songs at each other, that too is meaningful. I mean, just to mention, imagine the album for a minute here. John says, you know, how do you sleep? Well, that's that's about me. Well, it, it is about himself as much as it is about Paul McCartney. It's just that he was being egged on to hurt the other guy. Yeah. So in all, all those songs, you have a, a favorite of, of the back and forth songs that they wrote? Well, uh, I mean, you know, George's guitar playing just makes How Do You Sleep. That, that's really a great record, although I actually prefer Steel and Glass. Yeah, that's a good one. I like Dear Friend. Dear Friend is, is a great one. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to talk about the wildlife album. You know, Ram Ram, Ram Wildlife Red Road Speedway. The it's a little bit odd to talk about them in terms of being disc records towards John Lennon, but they kind of are. I mean, you know, John uh, John would. Uh, John would pick up on too many people, but was that really about completely about John? I don't think so. Yeah. And, and, you know, you could look at three legs and go, well, that could be about John. Um, Well, much less the the cover photo of uh, two Beatles fornicating. (laughs) Right. Was Dear Boy about him in a way? You can. A a little. John, John thought it was. Paul says it was about Melvin C. Right, so so I'm thinking if you're slightly paranoid and and looking for something, uh, what what your ex partner's writing, um, you could work yourself into a bunch of stuff. Especially when you are then writing letters to the press, where you're making it making the subtext the text. Both Paul, Linda, and John would write letters to the New Musical Express about what was going on, more right. than the songs. Right. Anyway, all right, so this is our first two weeks on the John Lennon Plastic Owner Band Ultimate Collection. We're going to have at least a couple more as we move on to the demos and and, uh, the various intermediate mixes that are consist of the rest of the set. Uh, I know you said you're really looking forward to being able to talk about the songwriting process as expressed through the set. Yes, I, I am, because j- just the way things evolve, you know, ideas, it, it not just evolve, but, you know, um, there's a version of Cold Turkey where they clearly got rid of a bunch of stuff. You know, they, they produced an acceptable record, but that wasn't it. So the next pass, they just got rid of all sorts of things. But it's good. Um, I like listening to it, you know? I, yeah. I almost like listening to that more than the finished record, although the finished record is clearly the better record. <laughs> right. Well, maybe because it's new. I don't know. Or, or maybe that's the version he should have gone with for you. But uh, anyway. I'm also, I'm also interested in uh, talking about Disc 7, which is a whole series of cover tunes that he does. And it's almost like this is the rock and roll record that should have been rather than the one that Phil Spector got a hold of. Because he does a lot of the same songs, but there's a certain joy that he has in these recordings, a looseness that is just, that's right now my favorite CD of it. All right, very cool. Uh, So 
we will be back next week, and then we will move forward from there. We'll, again, we'll be with the set for a while. <laughs> we will. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Talk, talk to you all next week. Bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Feaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. on a band was a concept of Yoko's, which is an imaginary band. The first advert for the plastic on a band was a photograph of some pieces of plastic with a tape recorder and a TV in it. And her idea was a completely robot pop group. That was what she must have thought of us all when she first came into the world, because she immediately said, oh, I've got an idea, this band. And the first advert was a page out of the London telephone book of the Joneses. Hmm. This is in the enemy and all the papers, you know. And there was supposed to be a party for the release of the Give Peace a Chance record, which was the first Plastic on a Band record, but we'd had a car crash or something in Scotland and we couldn't come. So at the dance hall where they had the party for the opening of the Plastic on a Band, all the press came to meet the band. And the band was on stage, it was just a machine with a camera pointed at them showing them on the stage themselves. So the Plastic on a Band is a conceptual band. There never have been any members of it. And the advert said, you are the Plastic on a Band. Join us, you know, in chorus. Free. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.